0: I don't know how you're all feeling, only some of you, but even the some of you that I've spoken to today, there's something so um, amazing about being able to just hang out all day long being nice to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it great? I mean, when can we actually just, day in and day out, just be loving? It's just such an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Anyway, I just think it's... I always want to acknowledge that. The permission to come onto a retreat, to just do this one nice thing. It's not so easy to do. You've been doing lots of other things. Not been so nice all the time, but that you could. It's possible. Tonight, I want to share with you some of um, the ways that I have developed my relationship with this practice. I did not have a very easy entry, let's say. Um, who knows why the reasons were, but the the when I first encountered metta as a teaching, I couldn't handle it, and I had lots of resistance. I didn't have, for instance, Guy last night saying to me that expect the near enemies to arise, and this is how they manifest. I didn't have such explanation, and so they arose big time, and so I assumed that I was hopeless. It was hopeless. It was the bad you know, mix. It wasn't going to work for me. I tried a few different things. I started off trying to be nice to myself, and that was a complete disaster initially. And so then I tried Benefactor. I couldn't come up with one. My grandmother, one, had died before I was born. My grandmother, two, never approved of my mother. She was from across the tracks, and so her children were never picked up. I never had a grandmother lap, etc. So it went on, you know, sort of checking off the various people who were supposed to be benefactors in one's life didn't seem to be there. So that wasn't very good. That was a put off for another year or two, two or three more retreats, forget <laughs> it. <laughs> and so it went on like that. And so I just kind of ignored it. And so for a long time, I have to say, probably about 15 years, I'd I didn't do a meta retreat, I would do Vipassana retreats and I would sometimes go, often I'd go in there, because I was a good yogi, I'd go and sit there, but I would kind of tune out the words. I'd do a few by rote and then I'd just give up and do Vipassana, which was nothing like so challenging for me. So because of this, I want to explain to you some of the ways that I have worked my way into it and it has worked its way into me to the point that I love this practice so much and love being able to help people also find their way in. Of course some of you will already be very conversant with and be thoroughly enjoying your metta practice and it will have been second nature to you for a long time but even so I hope that some of my suggestions will be of some value. Um, First of all I want to go through a few of the actual terms and the ways that I I discovered my ways to relate to some of these terms, like, for example, love. So love, I mean, that can just right on its own, be a trigger, you know. (laughs) Okay, love. And we can so easily think that love means what, you know, our Hollywood minds think love means, you know, romance, and delight, and gazing, and totally juicy and melting and merging and all kinds of things. That's what I would think love, you know, the Cinderella version of love. Everything's perfect from then on, you know, with real love and stuff. This is what um, D. H. Lawrence has to say about what we've done with love. Oh, what a catastrophe. (laughs) What a maiming of love when it was made a personal, merely personal feeling taken away from the rising and setting of the sun and cut off from the magic connection of the solstice and the equinox. This is what's the matter with us. We're bleeding at the roots because we are cut off from the earth and the sun and the stars and love is a grinning mockery because poor blossom we plucked it from its stem on the tree of life and expected it to keep on blooming in our civilized vase on the table. So I really think that we tend to think when we use the word love in a much more restricted way than it needs to be used. So love, my idea of love, when we're talking of metta, the purity of love is way more uh, impersonal, way more expanded and way less dramatic and much more the simplicity of how if this hand hurts, which at the moment I've got something wrong with my left wrist, this hand is there for it. It feels the same. It, this hand belongs to this hand. This hand cares for this hand. This hand hurts, so this hand is sympathetic. It understands it. It's connected. It's one thing. It isn't romantic or dramatic or anything like that. Just, it is together. Brahma, this word Brahma-vahara. This is um, an article by uh, Ajahn Pasano. Some of you know him. He's the abbot of Baigiri Monastery. Brahma means great, holy, supreme, sublime, exalted, divine. Vihara, Vihara, a place, a home, a resting place, a place where one is comfortable, settled, abides, hangs out. It also happens to mean an attitude of mind, an attitude of mind which isn't a fleeting whim, but actually a state of mind, where we can hang out, steady, rest there. So resting with an exalted state of mind. Love that's a connected feeling where we can rest. This is what we're talking about here, divine abidings. This is what he has to say. These qualities of the mind and heart are qualities that the Buddha himself cultivated and abided in. In a particular discourse from the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha addressed a Brahmin thus, Herein, Brahmin, I am dependent on a certain village. Of course, that was how they lived. They had to live near a village so they could go daily to be fed and nourished and in contact with regular folk. Setting mindfulness in front of me, I abide. Suffusing one quarter of the world with a heart possessed of loving kindness, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, and so on. The whole world I suffuse with a heart grown great with loving kindness, free from enmity and trouble and untroubled. Likewise with a heart possessed with compassion, possessed with sympathy and gladness, possessed with equanimity. If I walk up and down, my walking is sublime. Not just meandering around in a kind of mindless way. My standing, my sitting is sublime. This is what I mean when I say a sublime abiding place. So even the Buddha, completely enlightened as he was, directed his attention to cultivating these Brahma viharas when I think of hanging out with or abiding in a state, a mental state, I actually, for myself, think in terms of being um, possessed by that state. You know how we get in the grip of anger or carried away by some emotion? It's like we're in it. If I want to be in a state of kindness, then I feel as though it's as though kindness has come to me and is living in me has taken me over. So when I think of abiding, I think of like that, being inhabited by, if you like, this visitor called kindness, friendliness. I'll read a couple of more things he has to say. Someone cultivating these qualities of the Brahma this is the Buddha, by the way, becomes sensitive to the suffering they create for themselves and for others. Now I know that a number of you are becoming sensitive as these days go by to the suffering you create for yourself and others. And today, for instance, it was addressed specifically in forgiving that suffering that you create for yourself and others. As we do this, we become so much more inside ourselves and in touch with how we're feeling, and a lot of how we feel is difficult. And so we're sensitized. It's a sensitizing process here. By cultivating and abiding in these qualities, one leans towards that which would bring happiness to others and to oneself. It's a fundamental truth. As your heart becomes sensitive and open, you realize that suffering is painful and you don't want to abide in it. Mm. This is very obvious. When you read it superficially and scan it, We that makes perfect sense. But when you actually really... Go inside there. Become intimate with this. When you know by experiencing, by getting inside yourself and feeling the suffering, your system is learning. I don't want to be this way. Your system that really feels the struggle is the system that is learning and yearning to be loving. And that's the only way it learns, by knowing the struggle. So your feelings that you're going through and all that's happening is you're discovering all of this. It's completely how the whole process works. And it isn't all fun, but it's all very rich. The Buddha says that people doing this practice come to know that formerly this heart of mine was confined, was not made to grow, but now my heart is boundless Well made to grow. I love that. You're growing your heart. Sitting here, that's what you're doing. Whatever it's going through, it's actually growing. It's expanding. And when you think of how this hand is there for this hand, it's because this hand isn't shrunk inside itself being one hand. It's got space for the other hand. It's bigger than just a hand, actually. It's part of a body. And this heart, when it feels isolated and just about me, it feels just like me. But as it expands, it has a little more space for others, for future, for forgiveness. So this whole growing of the heart idea is this whole expanding of it. And I I find that um, right on, what can I say? (laughs) I can relate to that. Heart grown great with kindness. As the heart grows great with kindness, each you'll experience it, and you do in your own way. It feels better, doesn't it, when it's greater. When the heart is a little more expanded and there's a little more space, even if it's just space to be able to say, oh, this is horrible. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is is more space. It's an allowing that there was problem. And it feels more of a relief. It's like blood vessels, when we have high blood pressure, what happens is the blood vessels are tight, and the pressure of the blood zooming through these tight vessels is, is hard. It's pressure. It's difficult. When the blood vessels expand, either because we're more relaxed, or we have drugs to relax them, or whatever it is, we have our arteries cleared out or whatever it takes, then it's easier. It's more comfortable. It's like the heart. When the heart is tight, it's so full of itself and so full of its worries. As it relaxes and it grows great with kindness, the pressure goes down. It's actually more comfortable. It feels right. This is why we use the word wholesome. It's a wholesome feeling, and we all know that. No one needs to tell you, yes, that's right. That's good. Because we know that. Our system goes, ah, what a relief. Another word for this heart grown great is lightness. It isn't just that the heart gets big. The heart gets lighter when the heart is constricted and it's full of its grief, let's say, or its shame. It's very heavy. And that's a really useful word because it is experience of it. It's a heaviness to feel regret, for instance. You know, to feel resistance of some, or anger. It's very it's a stifling heaviness. Hard heart or heavy heart. As the heart expands, it softens and it lightens. So it's not such a burden. I have decided to love. This is Martin Luther King Jr. I have decided to love. It doesn't just happen just like naturally. We have to actually put a little effort into it. I have decided to love. Anything else is a burden. And it is. Then there's the word benefactor. Well, that immediately tripped me up, that word. I have a bit of a thing about words. I think I like the English language and a bit of a wordsmith. And quite a few of the words in the teachings were translated into English about 200 years ago with the expansion of the British Empire and the Victorian gentlemen, travelers, whatever they were. And so their language had... a Definite flavor of the moralistic formality of the Victorian era, which I actually can't relate to very well. In fact, less than that, I thoroughly dislike a lot of time. <laughs> I was raised with this kind of like what's proper and what's right, and, and uh, I'm rebellious still. <laughs> so, benefactor for me is a word that isn't in my normal vocabulary. It's not how I imagine things. How I imagine a benefactor from my unintelligent, childish, approach is how, for instance, my uncle, my father's brother, who was estranged from me for many, many years, who even when I was a child, once a year at Christmas, went to visit my grandparents. This is the grandmother who never picked me up, by the way, this is her son. He was a bit odd. And um, I had a sister and we two would ask, once in our three or four day visit, to go and visit Uncle Bernard, his name, and we would knock on his door, and he would be playing Beethoven sonatas. or something. He loved classical music, so he had them playing, but it was in the days of vinyl and needles and stuff, and so he would say, wait a minute, and then he'd go and turn, take the needle off. And then we could go in quietly and sit on the bed and not speak, and he'd put the needle back on, and, and either he would continue with his oil painting, because he was a very fine paint artist, or he would be conducting an imaginary orchestra because he would love to have been a conductor, but because he wasn't. He just never left home. And so we sat there for the next movement. However, that was 45 minutes, silently, little girls. And then we'd say, thank you very much. And he'd go and take the lead off. This was my my uncle. This was my relationship with my uncle who gave enough money, because he had plenty of money. This was the the family into which my mother had married. Enough money for my son to, to, to take two years in private boarding school when he was in high school. That was a benefactor. That was my idea of benefactor. I wasn't really very <laughs> inspiring. I mean, it was very nice of him <laughs> to lend that he gave us the money, but my son didn't appreciate it. He didn't really want to actually go out to boarding school. <laughs> so I had to change my relationship to the word benefactor in a way that worked for me. In fact, what happened was that very time that this beneficial uncle had given this fund so my son could leave and go to boarding school at age 16 enabled me to take my first six weeks retreat which I had been longing for for quite a few years but because I was a single mother and a midwife on call I couldn't go away that long and now I could. And I spent two weeks of the six weeks of my retreat grieving the fact that my little sweetheart had now grown up enough and was now gone and didn't need me anymore. I didn't know I was actually practicing metta. My teacher didn't say anything about metta. She just said, love him and allow yourself to grieve this time of your life. It's a very important thing. And so I spent two weeks just really being with my grief and my love and this little one who had now grown up. And, and at the end of it, I, it was actually some time later, I realized, I can do metta. <laughs> <laughs> of course I love my son. He was such an adorable little boy. He was the greatest companion. So it was, he was then became, obviously, my benefactor. But it took me sort of to go in blindfold and be tricked into it before I could <laughs> <laughs> realize that actually anyone can be your benefactor. Um, I know you probably know this, but I just want to share with you my understanding of the word understanding. And... Um, understanding the way it uh, registers with me is as though I'm standing underneath and receiving something, like a shower or something or a waterfall. There's Hot Springs Cove fairly near where I live and there's this perfect fall of hot water just coming over a rock. You could stand underneath it. So understand, when you stand underneath something, you really get it. You really feel it. It just floods you. And then you really know what it's like. So if you then have somebody else's experience that, in you like that, then you relate to them and you know what it's like for them. So this isn't a mental exercise for me to understand somebody. It's to have a shared experience. And then I really know what it's like for them. So that little phrase about until you've walked a, you know, 100 miles in their shoes, you really don't know. It's true. Meta is a a way that enables us to actually, because we can grow more space, our hearts can expand, we can experience on behalf of another what it's like for them. That means we can understand them. When we understand them, we relate as we would want to be related to if we were them. I mean, we become one. We are close then. When there's that, there isn't judgment, there isn't blame, there isn't frustration, there is understanding. It's you like you're, you're in their shoes, in their life, you're with them. Longfellow, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each one's life enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all hostility. We just don't know enough, we don't understand, we don't have enough information, so we rush to conclusions. And we put them in a little box with a label on and then think that's what they are and who they are and relate that way. But it's usually ignorance. We just don't know enough. And then when we get to know them more, there's more understanding and there's more empathy. Well, how about your own secret life? If you could read the secret history of your own life, you should find enough suffering and struggle to disarm all hostility towards yourself, don't you think? It's not so easy for ourselves, but it's the same process. Can we really feel for ourselves our struggles? And can we then have some compassion for the fact that it's such a struggle being me, sometimes, (laughs) and that I didn't mean it, but I couldn't help it? (laughs) and I didn't know better at the time, and if I had known more, I definitely wouldn't have done it, but I'm just doing the best I can here. That's compassion for ourselves. Mm -hmm. We need to understand ourselves, to live that experience and feel it and know it, have space for it. When there's understanding, that's what forgiveness is. It isn't anything more. It's just like letting that be so and with some understanding disarm all hostility. The Dalai Lama, if you want to help others, you must understand their suffering. You must really feel the suffering so that you can be helpful. Without feeling it, it's not helpful. It may be, you know, saying what you think might be useful, but it isn't really. It's not an accident or a coincidence that people who do service work the vast majority do the services in the areas of which they have suffered themselves because they understand. The people who've lived with a partner with Alzheimer's are the ones who fund and spend a lot of time and energy going and being with those people who have the same affliction because they totally get what it's like and they know what the need is or any such. So suffering, it said, is the proximate cause of compassion and this is why. You know it, you feel it, you get it, you stand under it for yourself. So, of course, you have some sympathy for someone in the same situation. And if you don't, then it's not so likely that you actually really have real compassion because you don't really get it. Another thing that has helped me with all of this practice, but but the Brahma Vihara is among them, is... Um, this is just a little idea, but I found this extremely useful. I heard this m- a while ago from an English teacher whose name is John Peacock, who's a scholar and speaks many languages. And, uh, and he says that the, the actual um, usage of the Pali language far more than the English uses verbs. The English tends to use nouns. So a lot of the verbs are translated into English into the form of a noun. So, um, kindness is like a thing, a state, something to have or get or manufacture or something. Whereas, in fact, it is an experience of loving. It's more of a doing. It's an activity. It's a being rather than a thing. And this is all through, and this happens a lot in the way the English language is structured. But so, knowing that... I'll often take the languaging of the teachings and revamp them as verbs and then I feel that I can actually be them rather than try and get them or figure them out or know them in a way in my head. I can then make them live in me and that makes me happy. (laughs) 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 So for instance, may I be safe? What I've done with that is I've done trusting. So I don't say, may I be safe. I say, trusting goodness. And when I do that, I actually feel that I am in a state that is doing that. And I feel what it's like to be trusting goodness. So I'm going to share with you my phrases and how they've worked for me, just because they may be helpful. So trusting goodness is um, it's like for me being held in something that's around myself and that's also within myself because I know that there is goodness within myself. Plenty of other things, but definitely there is goodness there. (laughs) And so the goodness that is available to me as much as it can be, either from within my own heart, within my own decency, within my own intentions, and surrounding me, people, friends, tradition, teachers... Wise ones, sweet ones, I allow myself to feel that I'm held within that. And it's reassuring and it's encouraging and it's safe. And when I'm feeling trusting, I relax. And my guardedness and my self blame and all calm down. So that's how I say, may I be safe and protected from harm. I say to myself, trust in goodness, and I feel that I am it. And it is the same effect. As I mentioned, I was a midwife. Some of you know for 20 years, long time, lots of babies. And one of the things about um, being a midwife is probably one of the biggest pieces that the midwife provides to the laboring woman and couple is a feeling of safety. And it's a feeling of... um, it's okay-ness because when one's in the throes of that particular drama, it's easy to forget that it's okay because it's scary because it's so intense and one has no idea, especially when it's the first time, how long that will last, how bad it will get and how manageable or not it will be. And will I in fact be able to do it? Because it takes us to the limits sometimes of coping. And so to have a being present who's absolutely, this is fine, this is normal, you're doing great, Allows that oh, trusting, safety. So, I probably have incorporated some of that in my Brahma Vihara awareness. So, feeling held by a being who's fine, who's saying, You're fine, which is why I think we have trusting or safety as the first one, because us alone, we are fragile, we are vulnerable, life is unpredictable, we are very sensitive. It isn't that safe. In fact, we're guaranteed to have a death sentence and so we have no idea when. In fact, it's thoroughly unsafe. And so we're going to, of course, be pretty guarded and worried. So this is why I think it's very brilliant to have safety come first so that we can feel, oh, that letting go, that calming down, that not needing for me to have to fix it and know it and make it okay. Because metta is trying to take us beyond this small sense of me. is trying to widen and grow this heart. So it needs to have a sense of stability and reassurance to be able to let that happen. Because isolated, I don't know if I can do it by myself. The Buddha did say to Ananda, no, Ananda, the company of wise ones isn't 50% of the holy life, it's 100% of the holy life. It's impossible to do this without being held by friendly wisdom. It's impossible. So trusting goodness is a good place to start with our metta. A little piece of information in this vein that I heard long, long ago as a midwife was when... I heard it after the fact, but not a lot after the fact. During the Cambodian War, from time to time, there would be, you know, in would come the Khmer Rouge and attacks would happen and fleeing would have to happen. And all through the east of the country, people would flee into the uh, the, uh, refugee camps over the border. Whenever a pregnant woman who was far along in pregnancy fled the border and arrived in a refugee camp, she gave birth like literally within a day. And it was because now she was going to be there for a while. Whereas up until that time, she didn't know any time that she was going to be under threat. And so her system was too guarded to relax enough to deliver the child. So the letting go that has to happen has to happen when there's safety. And this is a letting go of our separation, a letting go of our anxiety. It cannot happen without us feeling some degree of trust. One of my favorite poets is called John O'Donohue, who just died this last January, an Irishman. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. That's pretty trusting. Thomas Merton says, Our deep qualities are like wild animals, which only come out when they feel safe, but are always there. My next phrase is um, calm and peaceful. What I do with calm and peaceful, basically the the most calm and peace I have ever felt is um, deep in meditation. Deep, deep quiet, deep, deep calm. Really the settling of the waves of life. So I just imagine that I'm in some lovely long retreat in some lovely long meditation center and I just... attempt to re-embody the, the deep quiet of the fourth jhana or something. <laughs> Some equivalent. It's quiet. There's nothing much to do, so it's restful also for me, that feeling. My next one is warm and tender. Warm and tender is very... I love this word Tender. There's a kind of, for me, feeling of vulnerability and um, innocence and sensitivity, definitely, but not fear. Shy, slightly tentative, but open. So it's quite a back kind of a feeling, but it's available, nevertheless. It isn't loving, which to me might feel like coming forward, la la, you know, (laughs) some big effort. It doesn't feel like it's a a forward movement so much as a, okay, I'm available. It's so quiet and sweet, timid in a way, but not shrinking. Not gushy. Tenderly now I touch all things, knowing one day we will part. St. John of the Cross. When you're quiet, and you're at ease, and you see some little something, little creature, there's such a tenderness there. You're not loving it. Like, you know, If there's the bug stuck in the window. It's not like, oh, I love the bug, you know? It's not that kind of (laughs) enthusiasm. But there's a kind of like, oh. So the most amazing thing happened over the years of my practicing is I say, sweetheart, to bugs. And I just do all the time, and you know, even worms, even things that aren't particularly cute, you know, and it's just like, oh sweetheart. It's a sweet little tenderness. <laughs> and it's just you know, I never would have thought, really, I never would have thought I would say sweetheart to little bugs and help them out the window, but I do. It's nothing big and loud and dramatic. My fourth one is um, free and easy. And for me, part of how I do it, and I'm just sharing this because it might be useful to you, is I'll be going trusting goodness, calm and peaceful, warm and tender, free. Sometimes I add easy, sometimes I just go free. But what I'm doing is I'm also going trusting goodness. And it's like I'm feeling that I'm being held in this warm, safe bed, big thing. Calm and peaceful, it's like I feel like I'm sinking deep down inside. Warm and tender is this like, ooh. And then free has a kind of like, there's no, there's no separating where my head is between my head and the sky. It's kind of a, there's an opening up feeling. So it has this sensory experience. It has the four, which keeps me interested, keeps me going. But the thing is, they're lovely. I love them. They feel so good, so I want to do it. It is not hard work. It's delicious. I feel so nourished. And this is what I want to share with you, that you're doing this practice. Eventually it's, it's lovely and things happen and you'll find yourself in a moment saying some lovely thing that before you would never have said and so on. But in the actual moment of saying it, of being there, can it be, can it be what you love to have happen? Can you love it? I find, I don't know if love is the right word, but I find my experience in doing it this way, it's a delicious thing. Each mouthful is a nourishment to my spirit. I feel nourished as I say, trusting goodness, calm and peaceful, like warm and tender, oh, (laughs) free, oh. It's just, it's, it's exactly what I want to be doing. So it's the easiest thing to do and to keep doing and to keep doing and to keep wanting more of it very very inhabiting I'm possessed by it I'm addicted to it (laughs) (laughs) then I want to talk briefly about what um, the the Buddha I'll read again what he says here the whole world I suffuse with a heart grown great with loving kindness or or here in Brahman um, I abide suffusing one quarter of the world so suffusing What do we really mean by suffusing? What does that mean for you? Suffuse. There's another word often used, radiate. I think of a radiant heater. Like when you have a heater that's a radiator, it is warm, period. It isn't a blower or it isn't a a pusher of anything. It's just simply being warm and therefore warmth happens. It's very passive. Pervading is another word or exuding. So when I think of the sh- expansiveness, the sharing of meta, my experience of it is that I'm, say, feeling trusting goodness, and I'm feeling like, oh, I'm really trusting this goodness. This is lovely surrounding me and within me. Then when I'm sharing this with, say, my young son, if I'm doing that benefactor, it's like I'm kind of like vibing it out to him. It's like, can he too be in that field It's more a, I don't even know, there aren't words for this, but it's like um, a sort of oozing inclusion. (laughs) And so if it's, you know, if it's my dear friend, then I'm feeling the feeling that I'm feeling, and in my mind, so I do that, that's why I begin with myself. So I'm feeling the feeling, and then I'm bringing that one to feel that feeling too. I'm trying to kind of like... Imagine that they're feeling it also. I'm feeling it on their behalf, with me. So it's a we. So when I gave the other guidance the other afternoon, I was talking about perhaps you can try doing we, and that's that's how it works for me. So it isn't like I'm here and you're there, and I'd like this for you. Plop, you know. It's more. Can we be in this state? It's a shared experience, more in that way. So that word for radiating or suffusing, you know, is is in. in yeah, I don't know. Infusing, perhaps. Bathing. Immersed. Washed over. Find your. <laughs> soaked in. They're all very fluid, aren't they? <laughs> and it's a very fluid experience, I find love, kindness, friendliness. So I have a little story. Um, I'll try and be brief. Um, I was coming down here to Spirit Rock uh, the 1st of February to teach the month-long retreat, actually, with Guy and with Sally. And um, I had applied for a visa at the border and um, had allowed an extra couple of hours for them to do the process, which on the telephone was promised that it would be pretty straightforward, being that I was a Canadian. It took about four hours for them to reject me rudely, officiously and very frustratingly slowly and so I left and went back into the airport and uh, did a bunch of emails and phones and recreating more documentation came back in and a repeat performance and was rejected for the second time at six o'clock in the evening having not eaten hardly anything all day and was upset that I wasn't going to be here on time for the retreat and the whole thing was very challenging. I was equanimous pretty much, but nevertheless, I was hungry and I was frustrated. So then I went to a hotel and I actually telephoned Guy and we did more emails and faxings and tweaking of documentation and all. I went back the next morning, having had to delay my flight now for the third time and reapplied for the third time. And it was similarly treated, not quite so bad as the first time. So after a couple of hours of being invited into the booth and... Um, a question asked of me which I began to answer and then this man saying like No 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 let stop yeah, go sit down So then twenty minutes later I was called back in again and a question asked and I was trying to explain. He'd say stop, stop, go go sit down <laughs> trying to be equanimous and stuff. So this went on and so after like two hours of that on the third go round I remembered Meta. <laughs> <laughs> Would have been good a little earlier, but was good then. But of course what I do with Meta, I sat there feeling safe and feeling calm and feeling tender and feeling free. And I was and this man was a Mexican man, so English was not his first language, and so he was having a hard time deciphering things like Vipassana, Theravada, Cloud Mountain, Spirit Rock, Buddhism, it was all gobbledygook and he was having a very hard time. And so I was exuding and imagining him feeling with me calm and peaceful, and tender. And, and so then, would Heather Martin come back in again? So I came back in another 20 minutes later, and he said to me, what does da-da-da-da-da mean? And I said, oh, it means... and I showed him on the paper, you know, because it was all in the letter, but he couldn't extract what he needed from the letter. It was too many weird words for him. He was overwhelmed. So I, little by little, so he was able to ask me without feeling that he had to look like he knew what he was doing and didn't, and I didn't have to be like, oh, come on already. It's already in the letter. (laughs) I don't think I was like that, but anyway, I was much less like that, let's say now. (laughs) And very easily, we unpuzzled the puzzle, and I was given the visa, and it was all very easy. And very pleasant, what's more? <laughs> it's effective. Another couple of things um, that I like to use with metta and one is that um, the way with vipassana we use the breath, for example, as an aid to help us come into the present moment and develop our awareness. The point of the practice isn't the breath. The breath isn't the holy cow of a pasana. It's simply a popular technique that helps us develop this capacity to be aware, clear, present, connected. The benefactor or the self or the dear friend or whoever isn't the holy cow of Metta, actually. They are a muse, a muse. They are a stand-in because it's easiest for us human beings to develop this... Growing heart of connection to do it via a person because we're people and we connect with people and love them and like them, and we have exchanges and they are pleasurable. So, this is a language we have. So, we use this language, we use people to be the muse to help us develop this capacity that's way not the catastrophe, but just the human relationship, but this openness of heart. So don't be hung up about whether it's the right muse or, the, you know, it's the perfect best friend. Or they're simply a stand-in to help us connect with this feeling because it's the easiest way for us to do that. i mention wisdom. Wisdom. When I think with wisdom, I am nothing. When I think with love, I'm everything. Between these two, my life flows. Sri Nizagadat Sri Maharaj. Wisdom, Vipassana practice, is like, takes us apart. It's like, where is the separate sense of self? It's this pretend, it's this stance we have, this habituated way of perceiving the world from my self-concerned small spot. But when I look really clearly, there isn't such a self-concern small, so I have just made it up and invested it with reality. So I'm taking that sense of myself apart. When I see with love, that feeling of love is this grown, heart grown large with love, where there is no separate anything from anything. Everything is in all together. Everything is one, unified, everything. These are not different. These are the same reality, seen via wisdom. The individuals don't exist as individuals, it's life. Seen via the heart, all individuals belong together. There's nothing, there's everything. Between these two we go. Our life is both these things. This practice is going via the portal of the everything connected. Vipassana is going via the portal of there is nothing actually separate. But love is nothing actually separate. Love is bringing everything together. It's the same thing. So this isn't like I'm doing Vipassana over here and then next year I'm going to do Metta over there. They're just ways to come to the same understanding. And some of those ways are easier for some people and some are easier for other people. Or sometimes we do a certain amount of one and we find that we want more of the flavor of the other to bring it more into its fullness. So love without wisdom isn't actually love. If there is no wisdom of deep understanding, i.e. no equanimity, then it falls into the near enemy, as Guy described last night, and it's attachment. That's not really love, not not meta love, it's attached love, it's human love. Wisdom, on the other hand, if it doesn't have the warmth of caring, it isn't wisdom at all, it's detachment. So if we were to do nothing but Vipassana with no sense of metta, we could be quite wise, but we could be so detached that there wouldn't be any real, that's not really wisdom, wisdom cares. So we find that the wise ones, any wise ones who you know, aren't just wise, they're kind. In fact, the kindest people you know are probably the wisest people you know, because it's the same thing. But we're developing one aspect of this whole. So when we talk in Vipassana terms, of your true nature your true nature is vast your true nature is quiet your true nature is pure awareness with no one needing to have or get or change or fix anything about anything it just is isness it just is metta metta is quiet Meta it doesn't have to, isn't the personal i want you to be or i want to be less or more that's too small, that's the catastrophe, that's the near enemies Guy was talking about. True meta is the absence of the sense of me. When I'm not all caught up with my own particular dramas and needs and so on and so forth, there is an absence of selfing, and in that there is a heart grown wide, wide, wide that is available to be able to understand each other, to be in each other's shoes, because I'm not so busy with trying to be in my own shoes. So it's the same. It's as natural, it's your truest nature is loving. Your true nature is awareness. Awareness is the same as loving. If it's true awareness, it's loving. They're not a separate thing. It's natural. Which is why, I'm sure, when we see, for instance, shoals of fish, we just are so inspired. We love, I don't know anyone who it doesn't go, wow, when they see a shoal of fish, that shoal mind, or flocks, There's a place where my favorite place to see flocks is the west coast of Vancouver Island where there's a seven mile long beach called Long Beach and there are lots of flocks of sandpipers and they are so cute and so beautiful. There's long shallow wet sand and these amazing things just dancing and flitting and flowing and then they'll all land and they'll all peck and then all take off. Many big flocks. It's whenever you see flocks anywhere, it's extraordinary. There's a DVD out relatively recently called Planet Earth. It's a BBC um, production and uh, it's a lot focusing on the different species, being concerned about the diminishment and vanishing of different species. So it's focusing on species in the different arenas of the world, you know, in the Arctic, in the mountains, in the jungles and so on. And some of the shots about the flocks of geese and so on and so forth. The winged migration is, i some sure of you seem seen that, it's, we love that. Why has that become, you know, Cannes Festival favorite movie with hardly any words? It's because in us, we love that feeling of that sensitivity, that responsiveness, that connectedness. Here's a little story of... I like this story. I've told this story tons. I have a friend called Carol. She has a mother who's Irish. So is Carol Irish. And Carol's mother comes to visit her in Vancouver from time to time. She's little. She's old. She's quite sweet. She had to go to the bank one day. And uh, she was at the bank and her turn to go to the teller. And the teller was particularly uptight and particularly uh, offensive and sort of churlish with this dear little old lady. Carol was standing some feet back couldn't see her mother's face but could see the aggression on the teller's face and so was feeling very protective of her mother. So after some moments, she could stand it no longer. So she stepped up to the teller to tell her to be nice or whatever, to sort of do some protective intervention in time to hear her mother say, have you ever thought of doing different kind of work, dear? (laughs) Now, why we laugh is because we're shocked because we would expect her to be, in some way, taking it personally or being aggressive or something. But she wasn't. She was completely spacious. She didn't take it personally. She was actually kind. We like that. That's why we're laughing, because it's inspiring. This is possible. She wasn't shrunk into the small sense of self. She had an expanded, steady, stable equanimity at the time, was able to be quite compassionate to this poor, uptight woman at the end of her shift who shouldn't have been doing that work should have been a gardener or something work <laughs> with children maybe so in other words this meta is i think less than we might think it is it's quiet it's simple it's natural it's no big deal it's just not the sense of me and my needs being imposed on the situation. So, I was sad one day and went for a walk. I sat in a field. A rabbit noticed my condition and came near. It often doesn't take more than that to help at times, to just be close to creatures who are so full of knowing, so full of love, that they don't chat. They just gaze with their marvelous understanding. Mm -hmm. St. John of the Cross wrote that. And there's a book that I've read recently and uh, there's a little, little story in there of a woman who um, was very badly injured and very badly damaged in her body, including her face, with fire. And so she was so, you know, her face was so distorted and all the rest of it. And people would come to visit her, her friends. And she talked about how difficult it was for her friends, and how some people were actually much more able to have genuine compassion and just be able to be with her. And a lot couldn't. They couldn't stand it. They were anxious. They, it was too ugly. They were too afraid. They were so distraught with the pain she had to go through, and they would be shifting around and trying to cheer her up and saying things, and always oh, filling up the space, and rearranging the flowers, and and then leaving. And that, that's so a classic example of the near enemy of compassion like really loving her and caring, but unable to actually be okay with the fact that she had, had such a difficult thing to deal with. And so pitying her or being afraid of it or not or having aversion to the whole thing. Whereas those who actually could really have compassion were able, they had the ability, it just isn't a thing to be proud of, it's just sometimes we, certain things bother us more than others, that they were able to be with her and just be with her and be quiet. And she says this, she says, That I could be seen by another who did not flinch is what gave me the courage to look into the mirror the first time after the fire. So this ability to just quietly be there, not have to do anything, gives courage. It's like very powerful. It seems to maybe be not very much, but it's hugely effective and hugely valuable. This being just available with a wide, quiet heart, empowers the world, is a gift to the world. It feels totally nourishing for us in a quiet way. This is some of the strength of metta. It's a healing. Healing meaning making whole. And it's what our world needs. We all need this the whole world needs this the creatures need this this quiet open connected simple natural matter when you know beyond all doubting that the same life th- flows through all it is and that you are that life you will love all naturally and spontaneously but when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it, for you're afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. It's a vicious circle. Only self-realization can break it. Go for it, resolutely. Srinas Argadat Maharaj. I think that's enough. Okay, one last one. You might quiet the whole world for a second if you pray. But if you love, if you really love, our guns will wilt. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. might quiet the world for a second if you pray. And if you love, if you really love, our guns will wilt. is helpful. We now have half an hour for some walking practice in the dusk and then we'll come back for a last sitting and chanting.